Welcome to the Better Money, Better World Show, a podcast project of Impact Capital Managers, or ICM. ICM is a group of investors who believe that by solving the world's greatest challenges, we will generate market-leading returns for investors while bending the arc of human history towards sustainability and justice. ICM members have backed companies ranging from Tesla to Coursera to Vital Farms. Collectively, ICM's 60 members manage over $12 billion. I'm your host, Daniel Pianco, a co-founder of ICM. My day job is co-founder and managing director of Achieve Partners, a leading investor in education and human capital. Here on Better Money, Better World, we'll explore the stories of our investor members, the companies we're building, and the limited partners allocating money to investors who don't just seek alpha, but also to leverage their capital to build a better world. Episodes will be released each week and feature a new guest telling their own unique investment stories, strategies, and perspectives. And we've got lots of great guests lined up. So if you're excited about what this show might teach you about impact investing and the people behind it, make sure you subscribe to Better Money, Better World, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're feeling generous, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to highlight the work of impact investors and grow the community of impact investing. Now, with that out of the way, let me introduce you to our Better Money, Better World guests. Wireframe Ventures backs early stage founders focused on the health of people and the planet. Co-founders Harsh Patel and Paul Straub made initial investments of 500K to $2 million at the seed or pre-seed stage, and then work closely with founders to turn their world-changing ideas into scaled companies. A wireframe is a blueprint or model that helps programmers collaborate on the design and development of a new project. For example, Wireframe led the series seed round in Span.io, founded by Arch Rao, who previously led the development of the Tesla Powerwall. Arch set out to reinvent the 100-year-old electrical panel and has since raised over $120 million to bring his vision from concept to commercial deployment. Wireframe also frequently makes early investments in companies at the forefront of scientific innovation, like Mammoth Biosciences, co-founded by Trevor Martin and Nobel Prize winner Professor Jennifer Doudna. Paul began his career with Montgomery Securities before joining Infinity Capital and later became a partner at Claremont Creek Ventures. Harsh started in Accenture's R&D division before becoming a two-time startup founder and operator, and a VC at InQtel and RRE Ventures. Harsh and Paul had a long history of investing and operating in these themes prior to founding Wireframe. Listen to them describe how they back founders with high conviction at the seed stage to catalyze high-impact commercial solutions across climate and health. Harsh and Paul, welcome to the Better Money, Better World podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so really excited. Uh, full disclosure, Harsh is another GSB classmate of mine, so uh, we'll have to get over that. But I'd love to hear from you two the origin story for Wireframe Ventures. Sure. Yeah. Wireframe was a bit of an interesting story for us. Paul and I had known each other for many years by that point already, and I had been bouncing between being a VC and being a founder and my previous company, uh, we had just sold it. Uh, and, and Paul reached out and said, hey, why don't you think about uh, looking at some deals with us in the genomic space, which is a company that I was running. 
Um, and, and one thing led to another and he said, Hey, listen, why don't you join, uh, our, our predecessor firm together, which is called Claremont Creek, uh, ventures. And so Paul and I were working together there for a number of years and, um, and it was a great firm, generalist firm, uh, broad purview, series A, series B. But I think we both separately and then together increasingly had this uh, kind of attraction to investing in things that mattered more to us. And we thought were, uh, were phenomenal trends for investing more broadly in terms of generating returns. And ultimately, that led into this thesis that, that we wanted to invest in the health of people and planet. Um, tied to our own personal backgrounds, our convictions, and where we thought the market was heading. And we also wanted to be earlier stage than Series A or B for, for a number of reasons, but we wanted to be closer to the zero to one stage and helping founders get off the ground. Um, so we put those two things together. And instead of continuing to run our predecessor firm, uh, we all sort of agreed that the right thing to do was to take a leap and start something new. And so that's how Wireframe Ventures was born. And it was done sort of in partnership with our predecessor firm. And they, they were very supportive in helping us get off the ground. Uh, we had some LP overlap between uh, our predecessor firm and Wireframe. And then Paul and I went to market and, and uh, put the strategy together and raised the, the balance of fund one and uh, raised, uh, did the final close in Q1 of 2018. Uh, and we were off to the races at that point. So what does Wireframe mean, by the way? I think that's a great name, uh, but I'm not sure all of our listeners will know exactly why that's such a good name. Well, it had it had a couple of it had a couple of meanings to it, right? The the software nerd me- meaning to it was a, a wireframe is effectively a scale model or or uh, 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 kind of conceptual uh, design or something that you might be building, uh, and so you, you'd lay out a wireframe of it first before you started to flesh it out and fully build out a product. It could be software, it could be uh, something uh, in, a, in a different domain, but it was a notion of, of a, a scale model uh, or design that was in process. And we thought that was very uh, representative of the stage at which we want to help founders, right? It's not necessarily a finished product. Uh, it's something that a, a, an extraordinary founder is conceiving in their mind, but that's the, the point at which we thought we could really help them flesh that wireframe out into a, a, a real uh, business. And uh, we also uh, thought it sounded good and all the domain names were available. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and so there you have it. Well, I, I like the story about uh, helping founders at the stage where they've got their design set, but don't have all the details filled in. Maybe stick with that rather than the marketing pitch, but uh, <laughs> got it. Um, can you, um, can you, Paul, bring you into the conversation, talk about an investment that represents uh, the wireframe fund thesis? Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll pick one that um, is a, a fund one investment we've been working with for, for several years called Span.io. And I think it's a good representation uh, in, in a few different ways. First of all, the founder is someone who uh, had a very, very strong technical and product background. So Arch Rao is the CEO and founder before starting Span. He had been involved and responsible for launching the uh, the, the Tesla Powerwall, so the, the home energy storage system, and um, and ran that for several years. We, I had known him going back actually uh, before his Tesla days to an earlier uh, uh, startup effort uh, after his days in Stanford. And, and we um, really loved kind of the, the, the product capability and also the market insight that he brought to starting Span, which is effectively uh, reimagining the home electrical panel. So that old gray box on the wall, 
that really hasn't changed in decades. And when you start to think about what's happening in the home with solar, EVs, storage, smart connected devices, and then you recognize that every single one of those things as power flows and data flows through that device, it just became kind of the natural place to think about reinventing a product as we move towards electrifying homes uh, and, and ultimately um, uh, buildings of, 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 of you know, kind of commercial multifamily buildings. So, so Arch had this really unique background um, and, and understanding the problem and being able to build world-class product. And we led a, a seed round in that company at the end of 2018. So it was a, a you know, three and a half million dollar seed round. It was pre-product. They you know, were, were planning on spending a year building the first hardware units and then going out and starting to, to demonstrate there was actually you know, customer demand for these. Um, they've done an extraordinary job since then. We've, um, we've moved on to several versions of the product. We've had product uh, extensions. We're actually just about to, to launch a, uh, a new um, uh, charging unit. So one of the interesting things, for example, about knowing what's happening in the home is that you can optimize all of the other things that require power, like the speed at which you charge your EV. So they've got a new product coming out on that front. Um, and we've raised at this point 120 million across multiple rounds. We've been an investor at Wireframe in every single round uh, and have been closely involved um, with, with the team as they've gone from you know, pre-product, early product to you know, building uh, commercial relationships that are really helping them scale. On that, can you talk about building the syndicate? It sounds like you know a big part of raising that much capital and backing a founder early is creating a syndicate around the concept. What, what was that like for a company like Span? Yeah, so so in the first in the seed round, it was one of these uh, categories that you know took a little while to put the initial syndicate together. Uh, I think a lot of people looked at it and said, um, "I'm not sure that I want to back you know an electrical panel uh, as a as a high tech startup." But it's not the sexiest startup <laughs> idea. We thought it was really cool, but I guess it wasn't the sexiest idea for for for, for most folks. But we um, so in that first syndicate, we were actually able to pull together a really great group of people. Once we'd set kind of lead terms. Uh, we we spent time with other folks that we know, uh, it, kind of similar seed firms like Congruent came in and, and, and followed us. We had uh, Wells Fargo as a financial institution come in, a group out of Chicago, Energy Foundry, also an ICM member, which is, uh, you know, looking at uh, really kind of the power sector. And so we we had this kind of really, and, and then Hardware Club, which is another kind of early stage group that invests in hardware. So we pulled together a really complimentary set of folks. Um, and and then you know when we started to get beyond that, so the Series A was led by Capricorn, co-led by Capricorn and Arcturn, um, both kind of deep in in the energy space. Uh, and and at each stage, you know, I think there was a, a real conversation with Arch and the team around one helping him kind of define the narrative. What what is it that we're trying to achieve with this raise, and also really build the syndicate and think about how you can stage that against the development of of the company and the business. Um, we, uh, you know, by the time we got, you know, two years in, into the business, um, it was clear that, that the product was working, but we'd need capital to, to kind of accelerate, go to market. So uh, we put them in touch with the folks at Munich ReVentures, actually, along with Amazon, um, came in and, and, and led the, the, the not the, the, the seed, not two rounds after we did. So they led a $30 million round. And that was really around bringing some of the right commercial partners to the table. And then more recently, we, uh, announced a $90 million round with Wellington Fifth Wall, 
again, uh, great partners for for companies that are scaling and 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 you know have networks of folks in the in the real estate industry, um, which are very useful for that business. Now you're building companies that are your seed stage. You know the way you describe your fund is backing uh, seed stage founders on a mission to improve the health of people and the planet. When you kind of go out and build a syndicate like that, how important is that message, and how does that translate into how you pitch a company like Span, or maybe focus on one of the other companies that you work with uh, into that kind of a follow-on funding market? So. The thing about these themes is that, you know, when you think about climate, you can be investing in ag companies or, you know, companies like Span in the built environment or companies in mobility and transportation or um, companies in food. So really each company uh, is a little bit different in terms of how you think about the right partners at different stages. And that's one of the places we spend quite a bit of time with founders. It actually starts when we first make an investment. As seed investors, you know, once we write that first check, we're actually really aligned on the cap table of founders. And so we're able to sort of think about, hey, you know, who are the right people to get involved um, at different points in the business? And we have networks because Harsh and I have both been operating in these two themes for 16 years. We have deep networks, but the question is like, who are the right people, the right individuals? And so I guess to get to your question, like how, how does the health, the health of people and planet play into those syndicate constructions? Like that, you know, that's kind of our core North Star in terms of what we're investing in, but what any particular company needs is really, you know, is, is really unique to that business. And, 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 you know, it's, it's more about, you know, who are the partners for that business than it's about, you know, the wireframe theme, I think. Yeah. And Harsh, I know you're kind of deep in a lot of technical areas, but how, how do you stay up to speed on the technology evolutions across, you know, the 20 plus companies in your portfolio, all doing different, pretty deep tech oriented activities? Yeah, no, a number of our companies are certainly uh, would qualify as, as deep tech, and and I think it would be uh, disingenuous to suggest that we can have deep expertise across every single field that is relevant to climate and health, and certainly we wouldn't claim to do so. But we have been in these categories for, as Paul said, many years. And and in my past, I I, I was in doing enterprise tech for pharma companies when I was at Accenture in the R and D division, even before I was a founder, the first time. And so I think there are patterns that we recognize around how technology moves, and there are signals around founders that matter a lot, right? And so we do keep abreast of what's happening in technology. And I'll give you an example. Uh, I think broad trends matter significantly to us in, in venture broadly, and certainly to, to, to us as we think about it. But in in Bio, right, as an example, right, there was uh, the genomic revolution. Uh, I think everybody that read Wired magazine and the New York Times, you know, 30 years ago, we, we had sort of sequenced a human genome like this was an extraordinary feat of human achievement, right, like setting foot on the moon. We'd unlocked the blueprint of life. And then for a number of years, it was there was a collective so what, right? I mean, it was a wonderful scientific achievement, but but had anyone been cured of anything as a result? And and uh, had it helped uh, anyone in a clinical setting? And the answer was no for a number of years because it took a while for that technology to transform itself, to manifest into real applications, right? And ultimately it did in ways that were really powerful, right? It turned into prenatal testing. Uh, it turned into uh, tumor sequencing for, uh, for oncology, for applications in cancer, and, and any number of other applications now, both in human health and, and uh, ag tech. And so 
the the time delay between the scientific innovation and when great founders could productize that science into something that was an application that could ultimately get have a business model that made it into market took a certain amount of time. And so in venture, as you know, it's not necessarily just being on top of the science or the cutting edge innovation itself. It's also understanding when you have the rest of that solution coming together, right? You have the right people, you have the right uh, business models, you have the right uh, willingness to adopt on the part of whether it's clinicians or patients or payers. So a lot of things have to line up. And so that was a category we tracked. I ran a genomics computation startup as well as my second startup. So I was familiar to how that market evolved. We start, we saw how the venture-backed outcomes uh, worked. We saw how some of the venture-backed outcomes were premature, right? Maybe too much capital went in early. So we took a lot of those lessons and applied them uh, to another kind of wonderful bioscientific innovation, which is CRISPR. Uh, you know, same sort of order of magnitude of this is amazing. We have discovered a natural mechanism to be able to, to, to do gene editing. Uh, this is extraordinary. Uh, but again, what, what are we going to do with this technology? And ultimately, there were a lot of visions for what CRISPR was going to do. That was another field that we started to track. We started to look at companies in, a, in that category. At the time, we had not done any therapeutics businesses. So we were really looking at platform technologies around CRISPR. Spent about a year looking deep into that technology space, looking at uh, half a dozen companies pretty seriously that were drug delivery companies. CRISPR molecules are fairly large. How do I insert them into the body for some therapeutic benefit? So, so went fairly deep for a year, looking at a particular category company that we thought was a fit for wireframe, ultimately chose not to invest in any of them. And a year later, ended up just kind of at the right place at the right time and met uh, Trevor Martin, who's the founder and CEO of a company called Mammoth Biosciences, just as he was conceiving of a business that was going to take CRISPR and apply it in a pretty elegant way to both diagnostics and therapeutics. Uh, we ended up being one of the seed investors in that business. He shortly thereafter ended up recruiting Jennifer Doudna, who later on went to win a Nobel Prize for her discovery of CRISPR, along with Dr. Charpentier. And that business is now a, a unicorn biotech that has fairly large practice in both diagnostics, uh, including large-scale um, uh, 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 COVID testing, as well as therapeutics. And so that was just kind of one story arc for a particular type of technology. We don't necessarily always have such a long time frame in terms of how we understand the tech or the science and how it evolves into a company. But the reason that ultimately uh, made sense for us was because the stars aligned with a great team at the right time with a unique differentiated vision into a category that we'd already studied. It is interesting. Apparently, almost twenty percent of your companies you invest in uh, are are founder form people you've backed before. Um, can you talk about how? I mean, you're likable people, but uh, how does that happen? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd say at, at a high level, first and foremost, obviously, it, it's de-risking, right? You know, from a pragmatic perspective, having a team, and, and by the way, not necessarily all founders where there was an extraordinary. Uh, successful financial outcome, right? That, that's not necessarily a bar that we have to hold. It's founders who we respect, founders who we trust, founders who, you know, where we understand how they think, how they operate, how they deal with stress, right? How, how were they to work with in a, in a good scenario, in a bad scenario? Uh, and, and oftentimes, the, the leveling up of that human being, right, is a really powerful uh, uh, factor at work, right? So some folks have the bias that, hey, maybe this company didn't work out. So we wouldn't back them again. Our bias is 
if that founder looks like they've leveled themselves up from a skill set perspective and everything else about their capabilities were strong to us the first time, and there are really legitimate reasons why that prior company didn't work, we think it's it's an extraordinary opportunity to be able to back them again. And in many cases, they had competitive rounds being raised. And so they oftentimes were inviting us to participate for the same reason was because, hey, we have a new syndicate of investors around the table, but we know you, you're known entities. We know how you guys operated uh, you know, as investors on our board, how you supported us when things didn't go well. And so I think that relationship goes an extremely long way, uh, which is part of the reason we've done it uh, so many times. Yeah, and I think you know uh, it, it, what's interesting is you think about that profile of who, who we've backed. So you know, as you said, about twenty percent of the first fund were founders that we've worked with before, and it's incredibly rewarding to us to, to not only have the chance to kind of work with those people we've built that relationship with, but to have them really invite us in to to, to say, hey, we want to kind of do this again with you. And, and then you know, and then seventy percent um, are first time founders, and so I think that you know, it's still the vast majority of people that we work with. Are, are people who are, who are starting businesses for the first time. And, and I think in all of those cases, you know, what we're really trying to do is be just an aligned kind of extension of that team and pitch in um, in a number of different ways, as Harsh said in that zero to one stage. And I think when we look at, you know, the second fund, which we announced recently, uh, the other thing that's really gratifying to us is to see that, you know, a number of those folks came to us and asked to, to invest and to be limited partners. And so we've uh, I think had, had five uh, of our uh, founders we back in the past come in and join us as LPs uh, with significant checks in the new fund, which is uh, just a, I think, fantastic kind of honor that, that we feel. So that's great. How important is sort of the impact overlay to what you do to getting these founders to kind of want to work with you on an ongoing basis? I think I think it's really important in the sense that that you know the way we view impact is it's intrinsic to the businesses that we are funding and to the themes that we're uh, excited about. And so it's not necessarily something that is a, 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 you know, an additional secondary step. It's almost part of the core diligence that we're doing in understanding what this founders or founders motivations are, right? You know, in other words, obviously, first and foremost, can you build an extraordinary business, right? That generates venture outcomes, high growth, high margin, high terminal value. Can you build a business like that? Do we feel confident that you have the capacity to grow into a CEO uh, that can lead a company to that type of an outcome? Uh, but intrinsic to the business model that you are pursuing, uh, is there an inherent sort of positive impact to the health of people and planet? And the reason that's so important, one, it's obviously personally important to us. It's conviction that we have as, as human beings, as investors. But on, on a more pragmatic level, it really drives uh, the ability for that founder to attract both talent and capital to their costs, right? So, and, and in that order, right? The most important thing we think for founders to be able to do is to attract extraordinarily talented people to take a risk, which is probably an irrational thing to do, right? If you're a very talented person coming out of a large startup or a big public company, it's an irrational thing for you to take a risk and leap and follow this you know, founder into a new venture. And the reason that people do that every day, and it really makes the valley go round, is because one, people are willing to take risk and bet on themselves, but also because they want to follow people that, that have an ability to lead them into a future that they believe in, right? And so that mission alignment is a very non-trivial aspect of that kind of charisma for a company and for a leader. And so we think it's really important. And I'd say the last thing about why mission is so important for, for founders in these categories 
is because when you hit a wall and you will, right? I mean, every one of our successful companies, I mean, they're, they're never straight lines, right? I mean, when you have issues, what is the North Star that guides you as a human being, as a founder, as a leader? What guides you through those ups and downs? And if you're, a, if you're loose in your chair, right? Or you were there, just there for particular economic incentive, then it's a lot easier for you to, to cut bait, right? As soon as things aren't going well. And I think your people can recognize that. I think investors recognize that. Uh, but founders who have a genuine in, in kind of internal mission alignment tend to be highly driven and you know, very tenacious and sort of riding through those ups and downs in a way that we think is, is really value adding and accretive to our LPs. Paul, you're a member of you're a member of the board of Impact Capital Managers, so thank you for your service. And in in line with that, uh, how do you then measure and quantify what Harsh just talked through in terms of you know, the, you know, on your impact report, for example, you you say 58% of companies are already measuring impact, but 42% aren't. So how do you work through your impact kind of mission with kind of creating that into a um, you know, written or other uh, quantitative review of, of, of statement. Yeah, I, I think this is something that we've really, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. It's been a clearly a topic that ICM has been doing a lot of work around because of uh, the broad disparity of strategies in its member base. And I think maybe just to frame it, you know, for us, we're investing pre-revenue always and, 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 and often pre-product. So when you start to think about measurement, you know, it's like, you know, anything that you'd measure associated with the investment, there's not a whole lot to quantify when we first write a check. So as Harsh said, you know, a core first part is understanding kind of what is the mission of that founder and how does it align with, with our themes and what we're trying to do. And uh, as we've started down this process of being able to quantify the impact of our companies, I think the first step is just recognizing, hey, what, you know, when we think about for example, a set of UN SDGs, you know, as, a, as an easy frame to really start to align companies with, where do they uh, identify? And so we've done some work to, to, uh, to uh, survey our companies and to understand how they're thinking about that alignment and then been able to categorize it. In terms of the, the measurement of specific impact, um, that usually comes as companies reach scale. And as a seed company, you know, seed stage firm, that means several years down from our first investment is where you start to see, you know, scale achieved. Um, and I think the, the the most elegant way to do this is if the impact is inherent in the product or service you're delivering, uh, then you should be able to look at a quantum of revenue and understand how does that revenue you know, relate to impact, relate to some uh, other number. And, and, and as we said earlier, we're investing across ag, energy, transportation, et cetera. And so each company is going to have its, its own set of metrics. Uh, some of our companies are already measuring uh, a, a set of metrics, and we'll have them share that with us and be able to see how that scales as their revenue scales. Um, other companies, you know, for example, we had a company that uh, we led the seed run and called Electrify, right? Um, it's a software company that was doing uh, EV fleet management. So, you know, they were providing software for, for commercial fleets that were transitioning from internal combustion to, to electric. Um, extraordinary outcome. They sold to Ford. Um, you know, when you think about the impact, you know, I think we think of, you know, what we did is sort of catalytic in terms of writing a first check and helping that, that team uh, get you know from kind of that zero to one into market 
but had this opportunity to go and, and work with Ford, which was a great financial outcome for everyone. But also, as we look at it, and then kind of back to this impact question, if you think about what they're doing now is the cornerstone of Ford Pro, you know, charging, and you've got, you know, the, the most popular, um, you know, highest selling uh, vehicle on the road for the last several decades, the Ford F-150, now going electric and 40 transit vans now being rolled out. The ability for that team to impact the speed at which we electrify our fleet in this country is extraordinary. Uh, and I think having been a part of that story from the very early days as kind of a catalyst leading the first round is something that, for example, um, is an extraordinary story and it will have extraordinary results. Um, but it's difficult to sort of figure out how do you put you know, an impact measurement against that. That's a, that's a fantastic example. Um, it's almost like if you embed the impact into the founding DNA of the company, the hope is five years later when they're at scale or 10 years later that, that it's there. How does that, you know, you've, you've seen a number of these companies now go from where you invest pre-seed seed up through series CD, and you've had like an amazing list of investors like True, Spark, Mayfield, I mean, every kind of major uh, follow-on from every major Silicon Valley kind of heavyweight. Do you try to incorporate those values in through those additional rounds, or is it something that once it's in the DNA of the founder that it's it's hard to sort of like get it out of the way? Yeah, I think I think it's difficult to try to overlay this later, right? It, you know, meaning it, it, it's hard to add it, it's hard to inject it. It's something that is intrinsic to the founders. And ultimately, if the founders believe and build it into their business model from day one, then uh, theoretically, every subsequent investor into that business, it doesn't necessarily matter whether they are investing because of that mission or not. You know, ideally, over time, they are investing just because they see an extraordinary business opportunity. Some of them are mission aligned, no question, right? But the ultimate test is you have a syndicate around that business who thinks this is an extraordinary business at scale, right? Which is going to generate great returns for them, whether they have a financial motive, whether they are a transportation fund and they like the sector, or whether they have an impact lens. And I think what, what we see in many of our successful businesses, and Paul alluded to this when he was talking about SPAN, um, is that you end up having a really nice mix of names on the cap table, right? And, and that's not by design. I think it's almost organic because the company is successful both as a business and uh, as a mission aligned business. And as you look out, I mean, you've seen a number of exceptional companies grow from early to late. What gaps, if you could reach out and wave a magic wand and say, someone should create a, a new fund that does X, that really accelerates the whole ecosystem, what would be the most uh, important uh, fund that you could think of someone would create to invest at a stage along this life cycle? So the, 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 the space that I would point to is it still feels like there is, uh, there's an opportunity for a lot more early stage, kind of seed stage capital uh, in, in the themes where we're operating. People who have kind of, the, you know, I think that they're, it's terrific to see a really healthy, and I think about this maybe a little bit of a lens of someone who's been investing in climate and, and kind of energy for 15 years and, and has seen the ups and downs of that uh, the first cycle around. I think it's terrific to see such a healthier kind of capital ecosystem emerging over the past few years with a lot of growth stage capital. I think the number of people who 
are writing checks, uh, first checks, pre-seed and seed checks in companies that have kind of the domain network of knowledge um, is uh, is still small relative to the to the opportunity and to the interest that we're seeing of new founders. You know, maybe in many cases, generalist tech founders kind of coming into the space uh, and wanting to do something in, in in climate. So I think that that's I would say I think there's still there's still room for for more kind of seed stage boutique specialist funds. So so you're seeking competition for yourself. I'm not. I think that look one of the things I love about the area that we're working in is we're syndicating almost every deal. I've got great relationships. We've got great relationships with people at all of these other firms investing in climate and and yeah we compete but we also collaborate a lot. Um, and I think it's, yeah, I think that we look at the, the scale of what we're trying to do. We're trying to drive great financial returns, but uh, we're backing people who are really trying to make an impact on carbon and climate. Um, and, and there's a lot, lot more to do. What do you think the ecosystem could do to encourage more people to operate at that pre-seed and seed level? People, people tend to start uh, a strategy or a firm because it's what they believe they want to do and spend their time on and, and what resonates for them. So perhaps it's a matter of having more kind of, hey, folks who've kind of built a successful company around climate and then thinking about what they want to do next and maybe pouring their mentoring and kind of their, their interests into starting a firm and, and something that can be institutionalized. That may be part of the answer is that we just need, you know, a little bit of time where some of the early successes end up spinning out kind of new, you know, new, new investment firms, the way that you've seen in other areas of tech? If you were to guesstimate how many early stage um, pre-seed seed funds are there with sort of an impact focus in these kind of critical areas of the economy? In climate, I, I'd say there's probably half dozen to, to a dozen, somewhere in that range, of maybe, maybe less who are truly pre-seed and seed focused. Um, I think you see a lot of firms that that want that have been doing multi-stage investing over the last few years, but their AUM really looks more like a Series A or kind of a growth stage investor. That's interesting. So really, it's it's um it's actually not an area I'd really thought a lot about. And so uh, I guess uh, one one last question before we wrap: If you were to look out, you know, five years hence, and you assume we keep having the type of exits that folks like you are having in this in this arena, how big do you think? The pre-seed market could be either in terms of AUM or in terms of number of firms uh, focused on on the space. I mean, I, I don't know. Harsh and I, at one point, we were putting putting the wireframe together. The first time we started started looking and say, if you just look at the vast majority of GDP, how much is represented by health? And you know, uh, you know, if you think about climate, you're talking about decarbonizing the global economy. So I think the opportunity is, is, is relatively uncapped, right? In terms of the opportunity to create, you know, technology kind of businesses innovating in these areas that represent the vast majority of GDP globally. And, and what, I mean, like what I would add to that, right. Is that, is that, you know, there's a lot of reasons why clean tech 1.0 failed, for example. Right. But I mean, I think one of the things that's different as we think about climate and, and innovations in health and bio uh, is that, and I've seen this for for twenty years, uh, you know, in in my career, is that when there's a new technology or new technology space, it has a label and it's sort of an other, right? It's a different sector, you know. Even when I was at Accenture in the R and D group to start off my career, like we, were, I was literally part of like an internet applications group, which sounds like absurd to say now because it was a new thing, right? It wasn't the main thing; it was a side thing. 
And then we're going to have to get smart on this new thing. And it's going to have its own name, its own label. And, and obviously, as we all sit here today, that sounds absurd because the Internet is permeated through everything. Right. Uh, the same thing happened with mobile. I don't know, you know, uh, uh, you know, if, if the listeners would ever remember so far back, but Kleiner at one point, I think, had an iPhone fund. Like literally the iPhone came out and like, we're going to have a dedicated pool of capital to invest in applications specifically for like, you know, the iPhone app store. Right. And that, of course, also sounds silly in hindsight because mobile has permeated everything. And, you know, in, in my perfect world, you know, we think about climate, for example, the, the, the thoughts around decarbonization should not be segmented or separate. It should just be how everybody thinks about every business, whether you're starting a business in retail or e-commerce, whether you're starting a business in ag tech, or whether you're starting a business in transportation, we, we should, and, and, and God help us if we don't, right? But we should get to a point where those don't need to be climate tech necessarily, right? It's just tech that happens to be climate aware or intrinsically sort of the benefits around uh, decarbonization are just embedded in those businesses. And it disappears, it fades away because it's just how everybody thinks about it. And that'll happen if a few things continue to happen the way we see them happen. One, you have a, a an endless kind of drumbeat of talent, you know, moving in this direction, wanting to bet their careers in this direction. Two, you have capital, everything from pre-seed all the way to public markets, moving, kind of voting with their feet into categories like this. And then, of course, three, most importantly, you have very viable, profitable businesses that are built kind of demonstrating these values at scale. And if those things happen, right, I mean, everybody loves to point at Tesla, but it's a great example of like, that's a fantastic product, big business. Um, and so if we can do that across the board, then I think these ideas start to permeate the traditional financial markets in a way that you don't necessarily have to have segments or labels. That, that would be my personal view of how, like what success looks like and also the, the addressable market sort of for opportunities, right, is infinite. That is a great way to end. I think all of us hope that uh, firms like yours continue to be successful, drive amazing outcomes like you described with Ford, Paul, um, and, and not just amazing social outcomes that transform how we transport ourselves, um, but also the financial uh, returns that you've been able to put up. So uh, congratulations on Wireframe and Wireframe 2, and uh, look forward to what you guys build next. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. This is Marika Spence, Executive Director of Impact Capital Managers. Better Money, Better World is made possible in part by ICM, a nonprofit network of over 60 best-in-class fund managers investing for superior returns and meaningful impact across North America and beyond. Our members share a passion for partnering with entrepreneurs and scaling companies that will realize a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future. If you enjoyed today's conversation, tune in for the next episode of Better Money, Better World. Tell your friends and visit us online at www.impactcapitalmanagers.com.